0: John chapter 3, our verse is verse 16. We will read, however, from John chapter 2, 2.23 to 3.21. But our focus today will be 3.16. John chapter 2, 2.23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know, And bear witness of that which we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him May have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much because we have your holy word. We know, Lord, that your word is truth. Your word is the word of the gospel. And we believe in this word. Lord, there is no life without it. And we thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity to study it, to meditate on it, to focus our attention on the true meaning of these words, that we might know you be further assured of our salvation and have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Would you grant that to us based on our understanding of your words, your true words, your sweet words, and may they be sweet to our souls. In the name of Christ. Amen. We have come to John chapter 3, verse 16. This is a famous verse. It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible, perhaps the most famous although it is being supplanted by certain other verses these days, such as Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge. However, John 3, 16 is indeed a very, very important verse, and that's why it is famous, because in one verse, it encompasses what we need to know and understand with the gospel. Now, having come to this familiar verse, a couple of words of caution for us. One, Whenever we come across this verse or any familiar verse of the Bible, we should not skip over it quickly. We should not read it and say, well, I understand that, so let me move on to something else. We shouldn't do that flippantly or quickly or rashly. We shouldn't do it like that. Certainly, if we are intending to study the scriptures, we must understand whatever it says in any place, even if we have read or studied the verse or the passage before. In in these ways, we must make sure that we pay careful attention to what the Word of God says because there will be new insights. There will be new reflections. There will be new obediences that God expects of us based on the knowledge we have of a familiar verse of Scripture. So that's one. Don't pass over it too quickly. That's one caution. The other caution is that we ought to be aware beware of not taking Scripture out of context. Simply because there is a familiar verse of the Bible, it doesn't mean that we have understood that familiar verse of the Bible correctly. That is not necessarily the case. We, have, we, we may have even understood a verse of the Bible incorrectly, whether we have read it ourselves, or we have heard it from somebody else who repeats that verse repeatedly. This happens commonly in our culture. It happens commonly in false religions, that there are verses of the Bible that they cherry-pick here or there, and then they assume they have the correct understanding of it, and then repeat that verse to people, and people think, oh, of course, that's what the Bible says, that verse is in the Bible, and that's what the Bible's verse means when actually if you go back and read it in context, it doesn't mean that at all. Such as the one I referred to, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge lest you be judged. People use that verse in order to eliminate all judgment whatsoever except the person who's citing the verse. That person can judge you for judging him, so it's hypocritical. They use a verse like that, but Jesus never meant you can't judge anybody Because if you read that verse in context, he's talking about hypocritical judgment. First, take whatever sins are in your own life, resolve them, and then you can see clearly enough to help other people with their sins. Don't be a hypocrite, in other words, is his point. He didn't mean there is no situation to judge. In fact, we're supposed to be judging all the time, judging ourselves and judging other people all the time to make sure we are in conformity to the will of God in the word of God. That's just one example of taking a verse out of context. Well, I submit to you that John 3.16 is one of those verses that is often taken out of context to mean things that it does not mean. John 3.16 is that. Now, in context, what do we have? We have, from the end of chapter 2, we have Jesus preaching and performing miracles before the crowds of people, but Jesus does not trust them. They are trusting in him being a prophet and a miracle worker, but he does not trust them. That's the crowds of people. It is said that they believed in him, but they didn't believe in him for their salvation. They believed in him as a prophet. So that there is distance. There's no relationship or redemption. He, they just know he's a prophet of God and a good teacher and a miracle worker from God. That's what they believe, but not unto salvation. Nicodemus becomes one individual example of that very thing in chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Jesus knows he's an unbeliever. Even though he has much knowledge of the Bible, he is an unbeliever. And we just read how he doesn't understand what it means to be born again. He doesn't understand the true way to enter the kingdom of God. He does not understand what he means by saying, you have to be born of the Spirit He doesn't understand any of these things. In fact, Jesus confronts him on that in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You should understand. You have much knowledge, but you don't understand these fundamental truths of Scripture. Verse 11, you do not receive it. Verse 12, you do not believe it. And then he illustrates with Moses as an example that should be very clear to him from the Old Testament as a sign and a symbol, an illustration of the means of salvation, which is through faith in Christ. Now, we have verses 16 to 21. We're embarking on this next paragraph, which begins at verse 16. Verses 16 to 21 in your Bibles, if you have a red letter edition, these may be in red or if you don't have a red letter edition you may see quotation marks which end at verse 21 that is because predominantly among the translators and editors of the English Bible they believe that Jesus words continue until the end of verse 21 now that may be the case but i i think that this is more explanatory and these are the words of John the apostle explaining what was just happening in the dialogue with Jesus and Nicodemus. So verses 16 to 21, I think it may be more correct to take these as the words of John the Apostle explaining what just happened, what Jesus said to Nicodemus in verses one to 15. Now, if it is explanatory, uh, whether it is John saying it or Jesus is saying it, it is explanatory. And my main point is that this is an explanatory section to explain more, to illustrate more what has just been said. And we see that, for example, with John's proclivity to using this conjunction at the beginning of a sentence. Verse 16, 4, verse 17, 4, <laughs> verse twenty four. John has this proclivity of using this conjunction, not when he's quoting Jesus, but when John himself is explaining, whether in a word, a verse, a sentence, or a paragraph, John has that tendency to do so, and so John is explaining. So if he is explaining, if if this is an explanatory section, let's understand verse 16 correctly. When he says, For God so loved the world, The first thing we must note is that it is God who is the source. God is the foundation. God is the origin of this love for the world. It resides in God himself, not in any of us. This love that is shown to the world, given to the world, is originating in God himself. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 6. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Christ is his beloved son. And when did he ordain? When did he predestine all of this love for us? It says in verse four, he chose us in him. The father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's when it started. So if it started then, we had nothing to do with it. It does not originate in us. It does not originate in our goodness, our wisdom, nothing that is in us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. 13 to 15. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2:13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us, He rejoices, gives thanks to God for the church. Why? Because they are brethren beloved by the Lord. The Lord Jesus loved us. The Father loved us and the Lord Jesus loved us here. And how did they do so? God chose us from the beginning for salvation. From the beginning, which is similar to Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, this is when the Father, the Son, and even the Spirit, verse 13, through sanctification by the Spirit, brought about our redemption. Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundation of the world, which means it does not originate in us because we were not there. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 8, 2 Timothy 1:8, 8, 8 to 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How did God save us or when? It says in verse 9, Who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, which means nothing that he sees good in us, no good works in us, but according to his own purpose, and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity meaning before there was any time before genesis chapter 1 before the creation of the heavens and the earth that's when he chose to grant us grace and then in terms of us being born again 1st Timothy or excuse me 1st Peter 1st Peter chapter 1 1st Peter 1 verses three to five, 1 Peter 1, verse three, in reference to us being born again and this originating with God. 1 Peter 1, three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We praise God, we bless God for what? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he, by his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. We didn't cause our own rebirth, Nicodemus, that doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen... It has to be God based on Christ's work and by the power of the Holy Spirit who causes our rebirth, our being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what do we have? We have an imperishable inheritance reserved in heaven for us. And then we are protected by this power of God through faith. And one day we shall experience it. So we have essentially ask the question, does this love start with God or with men? And we have to conclude from John 3.16 and these other references, it starts with God because it started with God before time ever began, before we even existed. It starts with God. He does not see anything in us for this love to be showered upon us. Furthermore, when we say he gives us this love before the foundation of the world, we have to make clear that it's not because of anything good in us. What does the Bible say about us and our condition when God chose to send his only begotten son into the world? What was our condition? What was our nature? What was our status before God when this happened? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans five, eight. God's demonstrating his own love toward us. This love is so amazing that it is given, it is showered upon us, not based on goodness in us, But while we were yet sinners, we were still sinners, and yet Jesus died for us. That was our condition, our spiritual condition and standing before God in heaven above. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 also describes our status or standing as unloving or unlovable sinners when God chose to save us. Ephesians 2 verse 1, Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Who were we? We were unlovable sinners. How? Because we were dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. No one wants to look upon A corpse, right? No one wants to smell a corpse, right? A corpse is something that is repugnant because it's dead. And what caused it? Our trespasses and sins. Our souls were like corpses that are rotting away in the ground because of our trespasses and sins. We used to walk according to the world. We used to walk according to the devil, verse 2. And then in verse 3, we used to walk according, we used to live according to the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This is the way we were. The world, the flesh, and the devil consumed us. We were children of wrath, deserving the wrath of God. The anger of God meted out against our sins. That was our condition. So we were unlovable sinners. So what changed it? Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Our salvation happens because he chose to love us to shower mercy and love upon us in that condition when we were dead. And this illustrates that we are saved by his love or his grace or his mercy We are saved in that way, not on the basis of anything good in us. Then, when he says in John 3 16, God so loved the world, he this amazing love is for the world, we have to also ask who is the world that God loves? Who is the world that God loves? And the answer is, it is the world of elect saved believers. It is the world of elect saved believers. First, let me establish this point, and then let me clarify the point. First, let me establish the point that it is the world of the elect saved believers. For one, John chapter 1, John 1 verses 12 and 13. John 1, 12, and 13. Why do we have to say that it is the world of elect, saved believers? Verse 12, John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He clearly tells us that we are believers or children of God, how? Not because of our blood or our genealogy, not because of the will of our flesh. It's not our will or free will or good will because we don't have a free and good will. Didn't we just read how our will is corrupt? So it is corrupt and pursues sin. So it's not the will of the flesh, nor is it the will of man. That is a will of someone else who chooses to save me from my sins No, it doesn't happen in any of those ways. He's illustrating how it has to only happen if God does it. So God is the one who causes us to be born again, to be born as children of God. He's the one that brings about the spiritual birth, not our exercise of our will to believe in what he tells us to believe. It doesn't happen that way. He has to bring that belief about he has to cause that belief to occur. That's the way it happens. In John chapter 3, Jesus has been saying this. John chapter 3, he's already been teaching this, that it has to happen like this. For he told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Well, Nicodemus is not going to cause his own rebirth, spiritual rebirth, He's not going to be the cause or the source of it. It's impossible. Why do we say it's impossible? Because of verse 6, John 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So you, Nicodemus, must be born of the Spirit. As he says in verse 8, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You, Nicodemus, must be born of the Spirit. Well, if the Spirit is going to cause his rebirth, then God has to be the one who causes it not Nicodemus. He can't cause his own rebirth, just as he did not cause his own natural birth. His own natural birth was not caused by him. It was, in the human sense, horizontal sense, it was his parents. And ultimately, it came from God who gave conception and birth to the child, uh, to the parents for the child to be born into the world. That's the way it has to happen. Nicodemus is clueless, but Jesus is clearly telling him it has to be this way. You don't become a believer just like that. You have to become a believer only if God brings this about. Furthermore, John chapter three, right after our verse, John 3, 16, we have an explanation that it cannot happen with Nicodemus' will or Nicodemus' goodness. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. So the world of verse 16 that receives his love is in verse 17, the world that is saved through Christ. The world should be saved through him. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Belief is necessary in order for judgment to be averted. But if one doesn't believe, then judgment is there. And why is there judgment? Verse 19, it says why. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Judgment is deserved by men because they love darkness, not the light. And why do they love darkness, not the light? Because they practice evil deeds. Because they love their evil deeds, they won't come to the light. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. When pra- people practice evil, when they practice evil, when they love evil, and they know it, they know what they love, then they have to automatically hate the light. They don't want, if they love to do evil in the darkness, they don't want anybody to turn on the light switch to expose what they're doing in the dark. Right? And verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Then what is it, verse 21, what is it that is the hinge or the trigger of verse 21 that causes someone to practice the truth to come to the light? Well, if we naturally love the darkness in our evil deeds, what's going to change us? What's going to cause us to realize Listen, it's miserable in this darkness. It's miserable practicing all this evil. I'm, I'm in misery practicing my sin. I don't like it anymore. I hate it now. What's going to trigger us? What's going to change us? What's going to change our heart and our perspective on what we're doing that's evil <coughs> to come to the light? It says in 21. He who practices the light come uh, who he who practices the truth comes to the light. How and why? Because His deeds are wrought in God or are done in God, which means just like we read earlier, God has to be the one who brings this about. It's done in God or wrought in God. God is the source, the origin, the cause that brings about somebody to come to his senses, his realization. I need to get out of this darkness and I want to go to the light. Verse 21 says it. So if that's the case, it has to be the elect saved believers. These are just a few examples of the argument here in this book to show us that it must be the world of saved uh, elect believers. They have to be chosen of God for this to occur. One, One more place to emphasize the fact that it has to be God choosing one to have faith. And that will be from John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 will start at verse 35. John 6:35. Christ is before the multitudes who do not understand what he's preaching. So he explains verse 35. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst." Pause there for a moment. What does Christ mean by coming to him? Hunger and thirst. Is he talking about physical food or spiritual food? He's talking about spiritual things, right? So if he says, come to me, it's in parallel in verse 35 to believe in me. To come to Christ means to believe in Christ. To believe in Christ means to come to Christ. That's the parallel of verse 35. Well, how is it that one actually does believe? Remember, this is the critical question. What causes our true belief in the Son of God? That's the critical question. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Clearly telling the crowds they don't believe. You saw me, you saw enough of me, you heard me preach and saw my miracles, but you do not believe. Well, what's gonna bring it about? Verse 37 says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In verse 37, all that the Father gives me, which means that there is a group here called all, and that group is qualified as that the Father gives me. So all that the Father gives me shall come to me, means shall believe in me. All that the Father gives me shall believe in me, and the one who believes in me, I will certainly not cast out. It must take the Father to give us to the Son for us to believe in the Son. Verse 37 clearly announces. Let's continue in verse 44. Verse 44. The people don't like this. It says it actually in verse 33. Do not grumble among yourselves. Don't grumble that I'm telling you these things. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. 44 says no one can come to me, which is what he was telling Nicodemus and all the others. It's impossible for you to believe in me. He's preaching that, can you imagine that? Christ is preaching to the crowds and his message is, you all need to believe, you all need to believe, you all need to believe. He's not saying that all the time, of course that needs to happen, but what's he telling them? You can't believe in me, you can't believe in me, you can't believe in me. So far that's what we've been reading. You can't believe in me unless a miracle occurs. And what's the miracle? Verse 44, no one can come or no one can believe in me, unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The father has to draw people to the son for them to believe in the son. And don't think that this is incredulous. Don't think that this is a new teaching. Don't think that this is a false teaching. Verse uh, 45 says, it is written in the prophets. And the two prophets he's citing are Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 54, 13, which we read earlier and also Jeremiah 31, 34. He takes words or phrases from both prophets because the prophets are saying the same thing. He conflates them, puts them together in this one statement, they all shall be taught of God. Oh, Isaiah 700 years before, Jeremiah 600 years before, they had the same message. You can't believe, you can't believe unless God teaches you. God secretly, mysteriously, supernaturally teaches you and enlightens you to the truth that you must believe. That's the expl- explanation. Verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me or believes in me. So if you hear and learn from the Father, then you believe in me. Do you see now that in John 3.16, this world has to be the world of Elect saved believers. Now, a couple of clarifications. For one, how do we know that this word world does not mean every individual or every person who ever lives? How do we know that it does not mean every individual, every person who ever lives? Whether they hear the gospel or don't hear the gospel, that that's not what is meant Well, John, when he uses the word the world, does not always mean every person in the world. Let's look at a few examples. John chapter 1, verse 10. John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Look at this. He was in the world. He was in the world. He dwelt upon the earth, but only in a certain locality on the earth, in the land of Israel, right? That's where he lived, but it says he was in the world. It doesn't mean he lived in every part of the world. He didn't live in Asia or West Asia and also Africa and then Europe and then come to North and South America. He didn't live in that sense in the world. He lived just in one locality, but it says he lived in the world. The world was made through him. In that case, he's talking about everything, right? He's talking about the whole globe. And of course, he's not excluding outer space. He's not excluding the universe, but he's just, in a word, saying the world was made through him. He means everything. But then in the final case, in verse 10, he's talking about the people who are in the world, and he says, the world did not know him. When he says the world did not know him, we know, in the upper room, there were 120 waiting for him. We know he had the 11 disciples who believed in him. We know that there were 500 brethren to whom he appeared at one time, right? So we know that there were believers, but he says the world did not know him. Now he's saying that there were a whole bunch of people who did not know him or who did not believe in him or who rejected him. But he's not meaning every person. In John 1.10, he doesn't mean every person he means everybody else except those that actually did believe let's see more examples of this within john john chapter 15 john 15 john 15 18 these examples will be self-evident 15 18 if the world hates you you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love its own but because you are not of the world But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Who are these people? The world hates you, he says. He's not talking about believers hating you. He's not talking about that. He's talking about unbelieving people in the world who hate you. Even then, he's not saying that every person in the unbelieving world is hating every one of you at all times. He's not even meaning it in that sense. John chapter 16, John chapter 16, verse 20. John 16:20. Truly, truly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. He's speaking about his crucifixion. You disciples will weep and lament when that crucifixion occurs, but the world will rejoice. Does this mean That the people who lived in all of Europe, for example, or all of Africa, for example, at this time, that they were rejoicing that Jesus died? Yeah, 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 he died, he deserved to die. No. He doesn't mean that, but he says the world, the world will rejoice. Because many people never even heard that Christ was dying on the cross, even at that time when it happened in A.D. 30. They didn't even hear it. So you see my my point here that even John's use of the word, he doesn't mean every person, every time he's using the word. Sometimes it means that, but not all the time. Sometimes it means it, but not all the time. For example, for example, um, it says in Psalm 98 that let all the earth rejoice or that he will judge the world and the peoples with equity. Remember we read that, Psalm 98? He's going to judge the peoples and all the earth with righteousness and equity. Well, that's meaning every person. Because on the day of judgment, everybody is going to be held accountable. We know from context and from other scriptures that that's what he means. Or take, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. Are we better than they? By by no means, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is no one who does good, not even one, so forth. There, when he says all and no one, and we're all under sin, he's talking about every person, every individual. In that context, it's quite clear, both in Romans 3, but how the Bible considers all of us, every person, to be sinners in that way. So, we have to understand these words in context. Furthermore, I'd like to show you from a few quotations, a few quotations for for many of you who are hearing this, you may think this is incredible. This is incredulous. I don't believe it. It's hard to understand. And I cannot imagine anybody with a plain and simple reading of the Bible would come to these conclusions. I can't believe that. And there are many people who object like that and say, it's impossible, you can't do that, you're reading into it, you're misinterpreting it because they have never heard of these truths before. But I'd like to read from a a few of the Christian pastors and theologians after the time of the apostles. Right after the time of the apostles for the first few centuries, when they read these words of scripture, Both John 3.16 and other passages, they clearly saw it. They clearly saw what we are speaking of right now. First example, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was one who lived a long life and then he was martyred. He was put to death in old age by the Romans. Put to death in old age. But he had a few writings before his, his martyrdom. And this is what he says. And this Polycarp was a disciple of the apostles and especially John. In church history, indisputably, he was very early, he was a disciple of the apostles and especially John. John the apostle who wrote the book of John. And this is what he says. When he is tempted or when others are saying you're going to be martyred or we could be martyred, he says, quote, Neither can we ever forsake Christ, him who suffered for the salvation of the world of them that are saved, nor worship any other. So he says, we can never forsake Christ. Who is this Christ? Him who suffered, that means his death, for the salvation of the world. Which world? He qualifies it, of them that are saved. The world of those who are saved, he means. I'm never going to forsake Christ because he suffered for the world of the saved. And I'm not going to worship any other God. Another one, another one is Clement. Clement, this name is actually mentioned in the book of of, uh, Philippians. Philippians 4, verse 3. It says, Clement, whose name is in the book of life. In Philippians 4, verse 3, The Apostle Paul knew him and the Philippians knew him. And what did Clement say? He said, for the love which he had unto us, he gave his blood for us according to his purpose and his flesh for our flesh and his life for our lives. There he's clearly making a connection between the blood of Christ and the us and his purpose, which is for us, and his life, which is for us. He is emphasizing the us because he's emphasizing the church. It's for the church, the church, the church. His death was for the church. Another one, Cyprian. Cyprian lived about A.D. 250. A.D. and he says, quote, This grace has Christ communicated subduing death in the trophy of his cross, redeeming believers with the price of his blood he redeems believers with the price of his blood here we have augustine augustine who says augustine who lived 8420 420 he says quote by him the mediator the lord declared himself to make Those whom he has redeemed with his blood of evil good to eternity. That is, he the mediator is for his but by his blood, he makes those who were evil, he makes them good for all eternity. But that implies many people are not going to be changed from evil to good for all eternity. Notice here also. He says, quote, Christ will possess what he bought. He bought it with such a price that he might possess it. That's speaking of the definitiveness or the finality of it or the certainty of it that if Christ bought something with his blood, he's going to own it. He's going to own it. But we also know that many people die and go to hell. So he's not buying them and owning them because they're all in hell. The implication. Quote, another one from Augustine. He has bought us with such a price. He that bought us with such a price will have none perish whom he hath bought. None that were bought will perish, in other words. Isn't that what John 3.16 says? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And there are many, many more quotes like this that we could cite. Both from those early pastors after the time of the apostles, but also throughout the history of the last 2,000 years. There are many, many of such statements that are made. So, don't think that this is, because it's new to your ears, that it's a new doctrine and therefore it's false. No, many faithful ones who were put to death for what they believed, believed in these very truths. One more clarification on the world that God loves. One problem or one hang-up people have is that they assume or they've been taught that God loves everyone and He hates no one. God loves everyone and He hates and is angry toward no one. He loves everyone equally. God's love is that way, but He doesn't hate anybody. He's not angry at anybody. Those kinds of emotions that are there with us God would never have that and does not have that with people. However, let's see a few examples from Psalm 5. Psalm 5, Psalm 5 and verse 5. Psalm 5 and verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate, there we have it, you hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God hates those who are proud or boastful. He hates them because they do iniquity. He destroys those who speak falsehood. He abhors, which is a synonym of hating. He abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. He hates people like that. Psalm 11, Psalm 11 and verse five, Psalm 11, verse five. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. God tests everyone, the righteous and the wicked and the wicked who love violence, his soul hates. God hates the wicked. But one might say, well, that was in the Old Testament and that is the Old Testament God, but the New Testament God is a loving and kind and compassionate God and he doesn't hate anybody, especially after Jesus Christ came into the world. That's not true. It says in Titus 1.16. In Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 1.16. There are people who profess to know God. I know God. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. He's my savior. They profess to know God. But, but, remember we say talk is cheap. The Bible also says that. It says, but by their deeds, they deny God. And what are they? They are detestable, or abhorrent, or hated. They are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. There are people who are worthless and detestable. So there we have it in the New Testament. Romans 9, 13 also says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, which is not just meant to say that God did it with Jacob and Esau, loved Jacob and hated Esau, but that's a truth that is perennial. It is true in every age. It's even true in our own generation. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So it is also a New Testament doctrine. So we have to uproot this notion that God loves everyone the same, or God loves everyone and would never have any hateful or angry thoughts toward anyone. It's not true. He hates the unrepentant Wicked. He hates them. But he loves us in that he gives Christ to die for our sins. Alright now. Christ. It says in John 3:16, in what way? How did God demonstrate? How did God manifest? How did he display his love toward us? These are not empty words. These are not just words or, or fake promises, empty promises or empty words. No. He manifested it, He demonstrated it in a very real and tangible way in our world in that He gave His only begotten Son for us. His only begotten Son, His unique Son, His one and only Son. We are sons of God by adoption, but He is the Son of God by nature. He has a divine nature. He lived or dwelt with the Father from all eternity. He was uncreated. He's always been uncreated. He enjoyed glory with the Father before the world was. This was the Son that was sent from heaven to come into the world to substitute, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. If He did not do that, we would not have salvation. If He did not do that, we would not have redemption. Remember, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were sinners while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Romans 8, Romans eight thirty two, also declares this kind of love. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I lay it down on my own initiative and I take it up on my own initiative. This commandment I received from my Father. So it was the Father who sent the Son to be our Savior, to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, not sparing Him in order that He might spare us from eternal punishment. This is the amazing truth that we have that He gave His only begotten Son. He who was unblemished, he who did not deserve to die, he who was perfect, spotless, and blameless in every way, in thought, word, and deed, came into the world and died a miserable death on our behalf. This was the only begotten Son that he gave. So if it is the only begotten Son, and if he is so valuable, so precious, so so magnanimous in his love for us if that's the way the father and the son are for our benefit then what what is the means or what is the condition for us to receive that benefit it says in verse 16 john 316 that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life you see the connection though this great benefit is there, though this great Redeemer is there, though He has sacrificed Himself on our behalf, that benefit does not come to us automatically. It does not come to us immediately. It does not come to us without knowledge, without truth, without believing. It does not come that way. This is important to understand because some people think that on the basis of God's immense love for every person in the world, that since Jesus died for every person in the world with such a great gift for the world, every person of the world, therefore every person of the world will go to heaven. Known as universalism. Known as universalism. But we know that that is not true. True. We know that that's not true because there's a qualification in verse 16 that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It requires faith or belief in him for that to happen. Now, we have to also clarify verse 16 when it says whoever. After all, doesn't the scripture say whoever? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10:13. Does it not say that? Yes, it does say it. It says whoever right here in verse 16. It says whoever in verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It does indeed say whoever. But whoever does not mean everyone can or is able to believe. It just it has the condition, whoever does believe is the point. You see, those interpreters who say everyone can believe, when it says whoever, it means whoever because everyone can believe, they add this concept or this word, everyone can. But that's not what the context is about. The context is about the condition that everyone who does believe in this condition does not perish but receives eternal life. So whoever is talking about the condition that whoever meets, they are, they are saved. So who are the whoever? The whoever, Romans 3, All who believe, for there is no distinction. Or Romans ten eleven to 13, which we read earlier. Romans 10, 11 to 13, when it says that the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches, for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is the whoever in Scripture? The whoever in Scripture has to do with, it doesn't matter who you are. Whether you are young or old, whether you are male or female, whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are slave or a free man, it doesn't matter. Whoever believes among the various peoples of the world, there's no distinction When the Bible says whoever, it means whoever without distinction. You don't have to be a Jew or you don't have to be a Gentile. You don't have to be a male or a female. There's no distinction. That's what whoever in the scripture means. Whoever in the scripture doesn't mean that every person is going to be or has the ability to believe. That's not whoever in scripture. Whoever is not whoever without exception. But whoever is whoever without distinction, without any kind of artificial distinctions and categories of people, whoever believes. Furthermore, we have to see, it says believes in him. We have to believe, and faith is a gift of God based on his regeneration, but it says in him, does it not say? It says it in verse 15, whoever believes in Him. It says in verse 16, whoever believes in Him. It says in John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. It's required to believe in the object of our faith who is Christ Himself. It's not just any belief or a vague belief, but it's a specific belief in a specific person In our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to believe in Him. That He is our Redeemer. He is our Mediator. He is our peace between us and God. We have to believe in Him. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me. It requires faith in Christ. And why is this important to understand? Because among Christians... Among, with, within Christianity, among those who profess Christianity, that there is a very, very, very common belief which theologians call inclusivism. Inclusivism. Inclusivism means, theologically, it means that because of this great gift that God has given into the world, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, the Son of God, to die on the cross for every person, they say, Because he loved the world and every person in the world so much, that there are many people in the world who will be saved because of Christ, but not because they believe in Christ. They may never hear of Christ, never hear of the Bible, but they will still be saved and go to heaven because of Christ. They're saved because of Christ, not because of faith in Christ. Do you see the distinction? Let me clarify. Let me clarify and illustrate what I mean. In 1997, in 1997, there was an infamous interview between they, these are self-described reverends. So the Reverend Robert Schuller, Robert Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral in California, Robert Schuller, and the Reverend Billy Graham. The Reverend Billy Graham. Everyone has heard of Billy Graham, and maybe some of you have also heard of Robert Schuller. These two conducted an interview, and in this interview, a portion of this interview, we have this question. Robert Shuler, first he says, to Billy Graham, quote, tell me, what do you think of the future of Christianity? That's his question. What do you think of the future of Christianity? Billy Graham answers, quote, I think everybody who knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not. They are members of the body of Christ. God's purpose is to call out a people for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, the Christian world, or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, and I think they are saved, and that they are going to be in heaven with us, end quote. So that's his answer, Billy Graham's answer. Robert Schuller. if you see the interview, you can see he's overjoyed, he's giddy, and Robert Schuller says, quote, What I hear you saying is that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into human hearts and soul and life even if they've been born into darkness and never had exposure to the Bible. Is that a correct interpretation of what you are saying? Unquote. Graham answers. Quote, Yes, it is, because I believe that. I've met people in various parts of the world that have never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible and never heard of Jesus. But they believed in their hearts that there was a God. That there was a God. So they're going to heaven. Quote uh, and, End quote. So that it means that they're going to heaven. Billy Graham is just one example. He preached this not just in 1997 until he died, but he preached it since... His early days as a preacher. I I have found evidence going back to the 1950s, to the 1950s, that he believed these doctrines. He believed these very doctrines. But this is heretical. This is not in the Bible. Inclusivism is not taught in the Bible. Universalism is not taught in the Bible. But a particular, specific, conscious faith and understanding in the gospel of Christ. That is what's necessary. We must believe like that. The scripture is quite clear that it requires belief in Him in order for us not to perish, to avoid eternal punishment, to avoid the lake of fire, to avoid that place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. John has been telling us that this is a requirement, not just in John 3.16. Look at John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3.16 cannot contradict John 3.36. It says there too that we must believe in the Son to have eternal life. And if we don't obey the Son, when he says that we must believe, we won't have life. We won't see life. Instead, the wrath of God will remain on us. God's wrath or anger Right? So if God loves everybody in verse uh, 16, 3.16, why does it say in 3.36 that his anger is for people? His wrath or anger? Those don't contradict, but they must be understood properly in context. We are in a state of perishing. But we can be delivered. John 5 24. John 5 24. Truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. We pass out of death into life, and we possess currently this eternal life. This death is a death that is an eternal death or a perishing kind of death. 528. John 5.28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There's only two outcomes. So everybody's not going to heaven. There's two outcomes, a resurrection of judgment or a resurrection of life. The judgment one is the wrath of God inflicted on them for all eternity in the lake of fire. John 8, John 8, 21. John 8, 21. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 24 I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Well, what does it mean to die in your sins? It means that you're not going to have this eternal life. You're going to pay the penalty of your sins upon your death for all eternity. You are a dead person now. You're going to die physically and your dead person, your whole being, will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verse, John chapter 10, verse 26. Ten twenty six. but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. People don't believe because they're not of Christ's sheep. If they were of Christ's sheep, chosen by God to be his sheep then they would believe. Verse 26 says, 27, if we are of his sheep, we will listen to his voice and follow him. And if we follow him, we possess eternal life and we shall never perish. We will never perish. Why? Because it is the power of the Father and the power of the Son to keep us protected for all eternity. No perishing. Well, who's an example of someone who did perish according to John the Apostle? John chapter 17. John chapter 17. When Jesus prays, he prays about his own disciples, his own 12, the 11, all 12 of them. He also prays for us in this prayer in John 17. But when he's talking about or praying about Judas Iscariot, John seventeen twelve. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He guarded all of those 11. Not one of them perished, but one did perish. The son of perdition. He means Judas Iscariot. He died that the scripture might be fulfilled fulfilled he died in his sins he perished but not the others if that's the case then those who perished go to the same place that judas iscariot went judas went and perished for all eternity in hell and that's the outcome but if we believe in christ we have eternal life it says john 3:16 Shall not, should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you recall from John 3:36, 5:24? Those verses said, if we believe, we have eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. We have it now. It's something we possess now. We are saved now. We can have this assurance now. In hope, you have been saved. Romans 8:24. We hope in what Christ promises us for all eternity. And that hope, which is brought about because of faith, we have that and we believe in Christ, we are saved now. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we are saved now, we have been saved. It's a past tense reality. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we ultimately will be saved one day. That is the way of our redemption. That's what we can know right now. We can have that assurance now. We can have reconciliation now and that peace now. This is the only way. This is the only way, and it's possible now. Shall we believe in what the gospel teaches? He who has ears to hear, let him... uh, um, give heed to what the Scripture says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen.